This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update, the podcast. First episode in a while because things have been kind of up in the air with the new site, the changes to the newsletter, and actually, I'm going to announce the co-host today. Uh, J.G. Michael is going to be the new co-host, new and improved, and uh, J.G., welcome aboard. Glad to be here. Why don't you just tell us who you are and what you do? So I produce, host, and edit uh, the Parallax Views podcast, which is both a reference to a Zizek book and uh, the great 70s paranoid thriller of the same name starring Warren Beatty. Uh, I cover a wide range of topics, whether it's pop culture, politics, and I, I try not to get myself pigeonholed, so I interview everyone from filmmakers to I just interviewed uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson from, uh, you know, the, the Bush years. He was sort of a, a dissident uh, that was working as the chief of staff under Colin Powell. And I interview uh, everyone in between. So I, I just try to provide a podcast that has sort of interesting conversations kind of going against maybe the the de- the popular debate bro type stuff you see on YouTube. And I, I just want to give people uh, food for thought type of conversations. And uh, in addition to uh, doing a great podcast, JG makes me jealous a lot because of some of the guests, <laughs> some of the guests just get, I'm just looking at his website here. I see Noam Chomsky, John Sales, Zizek, I need to put Bill Ayers up there. I've had Bill Ayers on from the Weather Underground. I've backpedaled on the the podcast a little bit. I just wanted to feel like I was giving something more than what I, you know, than what I had been, which is just kind of interviews. I feel like other people can do interviews and they do them well. And I just wanted to kind of differentiate this. And I never stopped completely. I kept doing the interviews, but they were, you know, just as I kind of felt like it really. And then um, my girlfriend was listening to one of the episodes and was like, you know, for those of us who don't know anything about John Zerzan, it might be helpful for you to like pop in afterwards and like give some commentary. And I just thought that's great that like that actually would work out really well. And JG would be the perfect person to do that with. Today, we're talking to Alfred W. McCoy. He's an American historian and author, and he's currently a professor of history at University of Wisconsin Madison. His uh I think his first book was The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia. It's a classic among history fans and, you know, fans of Vietnam, fans of heroin, I guess. Oh, you got to mention the uh, subtitle of that one, CIA Complicity in the Global Drug Trade. So I believe the story, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe the story was that uh, McCoy was at a like a peace protest during the Vietnam era, and he ran into Allen Ginsberg, and Allen Ginsberg was like, "You're a student, you're 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 a young historian. You should get to the bottom of the CIA smuggling heroin into the United States." So, like most of us probably would not do. Al got on a plane and went to Vietnam and got to the bottom of it, which is amazing. And it's the beginning. Also testified before the United States Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on State Foreign Operations and Related Programs. So so there, yeah. And I mean, he was taken seriously. The CIA certainly took him seriously when they tried to shut his book down. But that didn't happen, as as we all know. Um You've you've had him on the show a couple times. Um, what were those conversations like, or what did you guys discuss? So Alfred's like one of those. He's like sort of the classic image of a a professor. He can go on for long periods of time, and I, I don't mean that uh, in a negative way. I, I always find him fascinating. Just to let you know, you, you kind of wind him up, and he he can go. Um, it's interesting because I, I think there's uh, a sort of big difference between what he does now, um, maybe compared to when he was writing about CIA complicity in, in the global drug trade and, and Vietnam. I think now he's much more focused on educating people about what 
geopolitics is. What does that word mean? And also, how does empire work? And really, I think the culmination of that in some ways is the book you uh, talked with him about, which is uh, To Govern the Globe, uh, Catastrophes and in, in World Orders. So I think he's gone in a direction of trying to get the big picture now. And usually when I've talked to him, it's been about issues related to uh, um, the idea of America as an empire and America more so as an empire in decline. This most recent book and a couple books back, A Question of Torture, which is about basically the evil, like the role of torture in what the CIA does and what, and in the role of torture in U.S. foreign policy and um, kind of the history of state torture. And I just really noticed his books becoming, yeah, like kind of demonstrating how these big topics that sound complicated and sound dry and academic like geopolitics or um, the rural empire really has a really affects our lives and has a terrible effect on our lives and is like worth fighting not because there's some abstract evil but literally because it ain't no fun to live in an empire you know um so i i've definitely yeah i'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because i've definitely noticed in his books a uh kind of a tilt towards that more humanization if that's the right word of these large daunting subjects so there's a real connection between the decline of U.S. credibility on the international relations stage after the torture programs. I mean, this has an effect on how America operates within that sort of sphere. And, you know, ultimately that that was damaging, I think Al would argue, uh, to, you know, uh, American empire. Because other countries look at that and, you know, it's damaging to the credibility of this idea that, oh, we're the big human rights defender and, and whatnot. So, But he does make the case, and I don't think it's – and I think it's good to kind of put a fine point on it that empires are multifaceted and the United States is multifaceted. To say that it's all just pure evil is as much as – as much of a lie as to say it's pure, purely good. Um, the fact of the matter is, is there is a strain of whatever America's foreign policy is or America's viewpoint that does have something to do with freedom and does, you know, freedom of the press and, you know, and human rights. Um, I think that's all seriously undermined by the fact that by how we go about it. That, under that's that's exactly the word he's used before to mm -hmm. me is that okay. uh, we undermine, you know, the stated aims with the actual uh, practices that we often carry out. And that even goes back to his work um, on Vietnam, you know, and, and the global drug trade and whatnot. And uh, he actually has a word for it in the um, uh, To Govern the Globe book, the, the new book. Um, not a word, but I guess a, a word concept, a, a, a phrase. He calls it the delicate duality. Um, so, you know, you have covert operations on one hand and, you know, uh, sort of dirty tricks going on uh, to maintain power, raw power. And then you have the ideals, the principles. And uh, he would also apply this to rising powers like China. Uh, you know, so something like the Belt and Road Initiative, he would say, yeah, that's definitely uh, lifting people out of poverty, and that's like the good side, right? But then he would tr maybe look at something like what's uh, said to be going on with uh, the Uyghur population uh, and, you know, uh, some of the uh, environmental issues with China. Uh, there's debate about, uh, you know, their role in climate change at this point, but he, he would say, you know, uh, their use of things like coal is actually, um, you know, detrimental. So there's always the difference between the exercise of power and the sort of stated principles that any empire claims to want to live up to, at least according to Alice framework. Yeah. So let's listen to that now and we'll come back on the other side and kind of, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the interview. Uh, we'll, we'll do that in a bit. 
The events of January, although profoundly serious, have been kind of trivialized. Other people are saying, well, you know, a few hundred people actually made it inside the Capitol and they raged around in a violent but ultimately unproductive manner. And the Republic recovered within hours. Uh, President Biden's election was affirmed. And so kind of, at least on the Republican side of things, they're saying, what's the big deal? And um, it is a big deal. And I, I learned this years ago, back in 1986, when uh, I saw a similar event uh, in the aftermath of dictator Ferdinand Marcus's fall from power. Uh, he had been a dictator that ruled the country for 14 years. And in, in 1986, there was something called the People Power Uprising, which was the first of the mass uprisings that ended tragically at Tiananmen Square and triumphantly in the, the Berlin Wall in Eastern Europe that overthrew uh, communist dictatorships. And as a part of that sweep, a million people rallied in the streets of Manila and they drove Marcus into exile. But then every Sunday, his loyalists, his fanatic supporters would rally in a park in downtown Manila. Uh, and they would uh, denounce the election that had preceded his downfall as fraudulent. And they would call for his restoration to power as the country's only legitimate president, they said. And I got a tip from uh, a colonel who was plotting a coup, uh, an inadvertent tip during an interview that, that after the, the usual Sunday rally, the loyalists by the thousands would storm one of the symbols of historic Philippine democracy, the Manila Hotel, which was the site of all the country's political conventions. And they would seize the Manila Hotel and, and that would be a kind of uh, a precipitating event that would, would, would have a coup unfold. And so uh, tipped off, I found myself standing in the doorway of the Manila Hotel at about five o'clock after that Sunday rally. And I watched those crowds storm through the lobby and check into the executive suites. And I took up a position in the lobby bar overlooking the sunken marbled lobby and watched the, this whole thing play out. At one point, Marcos telephoned from his exile in Hawaii and announced an interim government, his former vice president, Note that parallel there. Uh, stood up and, and announced that they'd received this call from Marcos, and he was proclaiming the restoration of the Marcos government with himself as the interim leader of the country. Uh, and you know, by midnight, uh, the the waiter apologized and said that we drunk the bar dry. Uh, they turned the air conditioning off, which kind of began to flush the couponers out of those luxurious suites, which were suddenly turned into kind of unwelcome saunas. And the next day, <clears throat> you know, the rebel troops, a couple hundred of which had turned up, uh, uh, were sentenced to, to 30 push-ups. And the whole thing seemed like a, a big bad joke. Yet a year later, I found myself standing in the middle of the, the main highway that rings Manila, as government forces with tanks and troops were attacking rebels, which now were making a serious attempt. They'd seized the headquarters of the armed forces, and when defeated, they, they left it in flames. And then a couple of years after that, there was a really serious coup attempt in which uh, President George H.W. Bush had to um, mobilize a, uh, a couple of, of U.S. jet fighters for a, a Passover of a rebel cavalcade that was fast approaching the palace warning them to turn back or they'd be bombed to death. Um, and so, you know, what I learned from this is that seemingly silly coup attempts can really shape the fabric of a democratic society. All democratic societies, whether it's a poor country like the Philippines or an amazingly rich one like the United States, all democratic societies are amazingly fragile. And it doesn't take much to, to weaken, to damage, and even destroy the, you know, the seemingly most resilient constitutional fabric. And indeed, what we're watching now is what many observers are calling the, a long-term coup, as the, the, those Republican activists having been frustrated in their attempt to seize power at the Capitol and stop the ratification of President Biden's election 
are now turning to a systematic attempt to rewrite the electoral rules uh, that will allow them to uh, overturn uh, other uh, future elections with a kind of veneer of legality. How would you kind of rate America's response to this, this kind of unfolding coup attempt? Not necessarily the Americans who want a coup, but you know those of us who are concerned about saving democracy, for lack of a better term. Like in a, in a complex situation like this one, where history is unfolding even as we speak, um, your comment, like all such comments, addresses the surface of politics. What Trump says, what Republicans in states like my own Wisconsin are doing, et cetera. Okay. But there's beneath that a kind of deeper substrate of historical forces that are actually, in retrospect, can be seen to be driving these political epiphenomena, these surface political events. And the, the, the deeper driver in this is, is the, the trauma of the loss of global power. Um, the United States is not unique in this process. Uh, for the past hundred years, every major imperial power that has suffered the traumatic loss of empire, the, the military reverses, the economic contraction, the sense of, of humiliation and loss of prestige. A succession of powers has all, have, have all suffered serious attempts to overturn their constitutional order. Okay, um, uh, uh, Italy, that brought Mussolini into power. Spain, that brought Franco to power. Portugal, uh, that was the Carnation Revolution that uh, brought actually democracy to Portugal and overturned the fascist order. Uh, uh, France, very serious coup attempts in the aftermath of the loss of Algeria. Uh, and, and, and even Britain suffered two rather curious coup plots that were quite serious in their own way. So, and then not to mention the Soviet Union. You know, when, when the Soviet empire collapsed, there was a coup in Moscow that brought Boris Yeltsin to power. So, you know, we're the, the latest in a long succession of powers going back a hundred years. That, that react to the decline of global power and all of the complex economic, social, and psychological forces that change unleashes. We're reacting to this by a serious challenge to our constitutional order. And that's why, on the one hand, it looks kind of silly. You know, the, 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 the rallyists, you know, the, the, you know the, the QAnon shaman and all the rest of these curious folks with their Confederate flags, uh, the South Vietnamese flag um, appearing in the U.S. Capitol, you know, it, it looks kind of curious, but, but it's just one manifestation of this deeper driver that is roiling this country and is likely outcome is unpredictable. Would you put like the surveillance state, the development of the surveillance state or the evolution into a surveillance state as another one of those kind of symptoms of the collapse of our empire? One of the things that's, that's happened over the past 500 years with global empires is that technology adds uh, constantly new arenas of contestation. So once upon a time, it was maritime power back in the era of Portugal and Spain. All right. And that maritime power elaborated in, into the ultimate confection, the ultimate artifact of sea power, the, the dreadnought, the, the battleship, and then the aircraft carrier. Okay. And then uh, during World War II, air power was added. And then you know, during the 1960s, we, the United States added space. And one of the reasons that we were such a powerful nation for the past 50 or 60 years is we were the only nation on the planet that had a comprehensive system of global telecommunication satellites that meant that the three C's, command, control, and communication of our military was much more supple and sophisticated than any other power on the planet. Well, as of last year, China became the second power to build a comprehensive system. And, you know, and, and you know, and Donald Trump established the U.S. Space Command, you know, so we have the Army, Navy, Air Force, and now the Space Command. Okay, well, cyberspace has emerged as an, an, another arena of global contestation of power because through cyber warfare, and we do indeed have a cyber warfare command, we have a national security agency, all right? It's moved way, way beyond espionage to an arena of real power. And it's, there are all kinds of manifestations 
that in this arena, along with a number of others, that our technological edge is being lost. Uh, and, you know, uh, we saw in the last election where, you know, Russia was apparently fairly sophisticated in mounting, uh, you know, a cyber campaign that, that roiled our elections and raised a lot of concerns about Russian influence in the election. Okay. Um, uh, so it, it's another area of contestation in which it looks like once we were way ahead of the game, you know, the National Security Agency was the first to use cyber espionage and cyber warfare. Effectively, we used it in Iran to, to damage their nuclear program back in 2010 in collaboration with Israel. Well, now as the rest of the world catches up, we look like we are as vulnerable as any other nation to cyber attacks. So it's a, it's a manifestation of technology producing ever more arenas of global contestation in an arena in which our technological edge, once supreme, is now being challenged if not lost. You know, I'm looking here at your bibliography going back to politics of heroin, your work in the Philippines, torture, you know, even back when you were working on your first book, did you have a conscious idea that you were exploring the manifestations of empire or is this something you kind of worked out a little later? When I was a graduate student, the world is wide and I could have picked any place to study. I chose to study the Philippines. Seemingly a, a small, impoverished country, certainly not as significant on a world scale as, let's say, the other thing that people were studying back in the 1960s, Russia or even China. Uh, um, so seemingly a kind of career-ending decision. All right. The reason I picked the Philippines, and, and by the way, once I went there and, and interacted with Filipino scholars and got to know something about Philippine history, you know, it becomes a fascinating subject all of its own. It's a really interesting country. And well worthy of, of, of study. But but at the time, from a kind of global perspective, sitting here at the epicenter of empire, it seemed like a kind of career-ending decision to pick this little country. So why pick the Philippines? Because the U.S. involvement in the Philippines marks the start of the U.S. arrival as a global power. During the Spanish-American War of 1898, uh, we occupied Cuba temporarily. We kept Guantanamo. We kept Puerto Rico. Uh, we took uh, Guam and the Marianas, but most importantly, our major colony, our major experience as a as a territorial colonial power was in the Philippines. Um, and the United States has remained as colonizer and ally and global hegemon involved in the Philippines since 1898, uh, 120 years plus. And so you can see the Philippines as kind of a microcosm for changing U.S. global power, all right? And so that's why I've, 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 I've studied the Philippines in order to learn about the U.S. empire, not only from the, the wrangling of policy in Washington, D.C., but the actual impact that this exercise of global hegemony, of global power, has upon a subject society, uh, on its people and its political elite. And, and what about the impact that an empire has on the citizens of the empire, you know, American empire, aside from besides enriching a few people at the top, hasn't necessarily been great for the American, the average American citizen. The question is, is it empire or is it capitalism and a particular form of advanced American capitalism in which we minimize the social safety net and maximize profit and productivity? OK, so, you know, uh, one could make the argument that, you know, and in this kind of evolution of U.S. global power and this ascent of U.S. capitalism to the point where we have been for not quite a century, the world's preeminent economic power. One could argue that in this construction of kind of a, an informal social contract, empire has become a critical form of support for the American working class, the American poor. Why? Well, first of all, we don't have much of a social safety net. Our wages are, are really low. I mean, the, the, the current minimum wage, which is $7 and change, is it, nobody can live on that, even in the most remote rural area in the United States. Okay. So how do people survive, you know, apart from working three jobs and incredible number of hours? 
Americans survive because on a global scale, you can buy more for a dollar in America than any other place on the planet. We have the cheapest clothes, the cheapest gasoline, the cheapest cars, the cheapest everything, okay? And that's because of what I call the grand imperial bargain, okay? The, at the dawn of American global power at the end of World War II, two things happened. One, the world got together at San Francisco and created the United Nations. And the world powers got together before that at Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, and they set up the global economy. And they made the dollar the global reserve currency, moving us from the, the, the gold standard to the dollar. And all currencies in the world would become exchangeable to U.S. dollars at the rate of $35 to an ounce of gold. Okay? And you know, uh, the Nixon administration canceled the exchange, but the dollar remained the global reserve currency. And so basically what it means is this. We send the world colored monopoly money, U.S. Treasury notes, U.S. dollar bills. And what does the world give us? They, it gives us clothes and cars and minerals and oil everything we need in this society, those massive containers unloading at the ports of the West Coast and East Coast, the trucks by the, uh, the legions marching down the interstate highways to deliver those products to our stores and shopping shelves, means that American consumers with their miserable wages can actually stay alive because they can buy enough of the essentials of life, clothing and food and the uh, material essentials so that they can survive. Well, you know, so it, in a certain sense, you know, as this begins to change, you know, we're going to see that this jury rigged social contract that we put together since the end of World War II of, you know, basically low wages, minimal social safety net, but cheap products, that's going to end. Okay. And we're already seeing it with the housing crisis, we're all seeing inflation. You know, and, and watching inflation bite into budgets and, and put pressure on people, you know, and more broadly, watching the, the impact of, you know, of the deindustrialization of American society since uh, China joined the World Trade Organization back in 2001. You know, this has had, you know, profound impact upon American society. And we're, I think, um, watching the beginning of a downward slide. So as our kind of premier economic position, the grand imperial bargain comes to an end, and we start having to pay more for our products, our natural economic advantage from having the, the global reserve currency comes to an end, we're going to see more and more of these kinds of tensions that have manifested themselves in, for example, the election of Donald Trump and the conservative character of the Republican Party. America has spent a lot of time empowering far-right or authoritarian leaders as part of maintaining its empire all over the world. Are we seeing some sort of like some degree of like blowback from that? Or does that necessarily impact the home front? This is a global trend. And it proceeds, I think, from uh, a bipartisan decision made in Washington uh, around uh, 2000. There, at, you know, with the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 and the emergence of the United States as the world's sole superpower, with this amazingly strong military, absolutely dominant economically, and no peer power anywhere on the horizon. At this moment of supreme hegemonic influence, um, uh, elites in Washington, D.C., both Republican and Democrat, in the midst of their imperial hubris, decided that they could admit China to the World Trade Organization as an economic peer, giving China access basically to every major market on the planet, and that China would play the game by American rules. China would become a nice liberal democracy. They would take the international system as they found it, and they wouldn't change anything. Now, when retrospect, okay, when the world's historically greatest power, which is China, with 20% of the world's population, you know, in a very disciplined society with an emerging infrastructure, you admit such an entity into the global economy, you know, you, you should expect change. Well, elites in Washington, D.C. were so absolutely wrapped in their hubris, their sense of this endless American power. You know, it was the end of history. The destiny of humankind was clear. All humanity 
would follow the American way of capitalism, open markets, free elections in China would be swept along in this insurmountable thrust of American-led history. Well, of course, it didn't happen that way. Uh, China, within the next 15 years following its admission to the World Trade Organization in 2001, accumulated $4 trillion in foreign exchange reserves and, 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 and an unprecedented hoard of cash. And China set about changing the world order. Uh, and um, and the thing that happened uh, as a part of that change was that, you know, in the past, the WTO basically was a deal among industrial nations. You give us your Mercedes and BMWs and Audis, Germany, and we'll give you our Boeing jets. Okay. Kind of like, you know, deal, deal. Okay. So, so maybe we lose a bit of our auto market, but our aircraft manufacturing and that supply chain grows. Okay. That sort of thing. Okay. Well, for the first time, you had a developing nation with this enormous labor force that could manufacture just about any low tech good coming into the economy and factories around the industrial world began closing and the tensions that I described earlier began to mount as unemployment, as industrial wastelands began to form across America, Europe, and in certain areas, Japan as well. Uh, and the tensions began to rise. And what we saw was the rise of, of radical populism and ultranationalism across Europe. People like uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, uh, Geert Wilders in, in, in the Netherlands, uh, Orban in Hungary, uh, law and justice in Poland, et cetera. Okay? You got this resurgent populism rising. And Trump was just one manifestation of this global trend driven by this this. I could have put it, what I call the, the bipartisan American project of national decline. You know, one of the greatest geopolitical bungles in recent world history. You know, and, you know, and I guess to their credit, you know, some of the elites are now admitting that that was a pretty bad decision. Yeah. Well, it's bizarre because, like, as you've described in your book, To Govern the Globe, this isn't the first time we've seen an empire form or collapse. What do you make of this kind of like ignorance of, of history? Well, the book to govern the globe surveys the, the last 500 years and makes an argument that in those 500 years, there have been 90 empires, large and small that have come and gone, but there have only been three world orders. That's to say, systems arising from imperial power that are pervasive and powerful enough to actually form a kind of civilization, a lifestyle. The first was the Iberian Age, <clears throat> in which Spain and Portugal expanded. They brought the continents into contact for the first time in, in human history. And, and they propagated a, a regime based upon Christian dominance of the, the, the non-Christian world. Uh, <laughs> enormous human rights abuses, and yet they also discovered the, particularly the religious, the Spanish religious who were appalled by the conquest and the slaughter. They discovered and began to develop a doctrine of universal human rights that we're living with today. Um, then then uh, in the crisis of the Napoleonic Wars, the cataclysm and the catastrophe of those wars that roiled Europe for 20 years and killed 6 million people, uh, <coughs> emerged uh, the, the British world order, driven in part by the British attempt to end slavery, which was one of the artifacts of the Iberian age, and also their promotion of, of coal-fired steam power as a substitute form of energy, and driven by these, these geopolitical and economic changes. Britain for a century was the world's preeminent power, and that power collapsed in the cataclysm of World War II, and out of that emerged the U.S. global system, which was marked by three key elements. First of all, that debate over human rights was institutionalized in the United Nations, both the U.N. Charter uh, of 1945 and the U.N. Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948, um, a, a document that was transformative, ultimately, in ending the legitimacy of apartheid in South Africa and 
racial segregation in the United States. Uh, and uh, the other thing that had ended was empire. Under the UN Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, there is a statement that not only do individuals have human rights, but every human community has the right to live in a sovereign nation of inviolable sovereignty that cannot be invaded or dominated by another power. And undergirding both of these principles was the idea of, of uh, international law rather than armed conflict as a way to regulate the affairs among nations. Uh, and I suppose infusing this entire system was a spirit of international cooperation. The idea of an international community that would cooperate and work together in order to uplift most of the world's people from poverty and minimize the threat of armed conflict. Okay, so uh, uh, every one of these world orders, however, is riven by a, a kind of a contradiction, a duality. Uh, in the case of the, the Iberian world order, it was slavery and then the, the, the idea of human rights. In other words, the, the duality is power and principle. So in, in the Iberian age, power meant slavery, principle meant an evolving doctrine of human rights. In the British imperial age, it meant opposition to slavery as a violation of human rights. And yet, on the other side of that duality, the propagation of global empire, that by 1900, there were 146 colonies covering 40% of the world in which the people had no civil rights. And then in the, in the US international order, the US world order, there was these principles of universal human rights and inviolable national sovereignty. And of course, the United States having articulated those principles and enshrined them in the United Nations. Then during the, the, the conduct of the Cold War, exercised its hegemonic power and violated those same principles. We violated the doctrine of human rights by propagating torture as a way of fighting communism uh, globally. And uh, we developed the CIA as a, a mechanism for resolving the contradiction in the US world order. I mean, in other words, how do you intervene in another nation when you can't intervene because it has inviolable sovereignty? Okay, you do so covertly. And that was why the CIA was ultimately created. And that was how the United States exercised its hegemonic power during, during, throughout the Cold War and it's an aftermath. Um, okay, so now we're, we're at a situation where this American world order, both its hegemonic power and its, its liberal principles enshrined in the UN and in the international rule of law, you know, that's coming to an end. I'd say by 2030, uh, China is going to eclipse U.S. global power. Um, very simply, the international accounting firm PricewaterhouseCoopers says that by 2030, China's economy will be 50% larger than the U.S. economy. They will be by far the world's premier economic power. And since China and the United States spend roughly about two and three percent of their gross domestic product on military matters over the long term. When your economy is 50 percent bigger, your military will be correspondingly bigger and more powerful as well. And China is no longer, I think, a, a near peer competitor. China is becoming a peer competitor. And there's a number of areas uh, like satellite communication security, hypersonic missiles, where China's ahead of the curve technologically. Uh, their anti-missile defenses are far superior to our own. Okay, So they're already ahead of us technologically in a number of critical areas. And by 2030, they're likely to be the world's not only premier economic power, but you know, maybe even the world's premier military power. So for all these reasons, you know, by 2030, U.S. global genomy is over. And the real question we're facing now is will the liberal international order that the United States created, embodied in the United Nations, the rule of law, human rights, and the rest, will that survive this transition to, to Chinese global hegemony? And I'm not very I'm not very optimistic about that, that that will happen. Right. I think China is, is going to is in the process not only of supplanting 
the United States as the world's great global hegemon, but is also in the process of constructing a new world order that will be very different from the one we've been living in for the last 70 years. Yeah, I mean, I definitely get a feeling looking at domestic politics that it's kind of a race to the bottom, you know, in the sense that the, you know, the priorities don't seem to, or the policies don't even seem to acknowledge the fact that America is becoming eclipsed. Yeah, you're right about that. I mean, when when you, if anything we've been talking about for the last few minutes, you know, the waning of U.S. global hegemony, an end to the international system, the loss of the dollar as global reserve currency, the loss of the United States position as the, with all the privileges that accrue as the world's premier economic power. If, if, and, 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 and if, if I'm right, if Whitewater's Coopers and the U.S. National Intelligence Council are right, you know, if all these informed bodies that do systematic and careful study of the situation, you know, are right that it's pretty much over by 2030, okay? That's not very far. That's eight years from now. That's just two presidential elections. It's eight birthdays. It's, you know, I don't know whichever, however you want to measure it. It's, it's close, right? It's not like we're talking about something that's going to happen in the 22nd century. And, you know, we're on the precipice of this traumatic change and nobody is talking about it. Everybody's talking about inflation or, you know, uh, the 2020 election, uh, you know, you know and actually that's one of the markers of imperial decline. Okay. Um, back in the, the 1950s, when Britain was engaged in its long imperial recessional, one of the things that happened was that the, 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 the party that had dominated British politics for over a century, the Conservatives, the, the Tories, were still in power in the United Kingdom to even today, all right, um, that they retreated into irrationality. They, they, they simply could not cope with the idea of Britain losing its imperial power. And uh, they plunged into something called micromilitarism, which is, you know, uh, a really common response by fading imperial powers. This idea that a bold military strike will somehow recover uh, lost power, lost prestige. And so uh, under Sir Anthony Eden, the British prime minister, the successor to Winston Churchill, Britain planned, a, along with France and Israel, planned a secret strike to recapture the Suez Canal, which Egypt's leader Nasser had had nationalized, and in 1956, six British and French aircraft carriers, tens of thousands of troops stormed ashore in the Suez Canal. Uh, they destroyed the Egyptian air force. They, the Israelis smashed the uh, Egyptian armored uh, columns in the Sinai Desert. You know, uh, it looked like they were on the precipice of victory, and then. Uh, there was only one problem, geopolitics. Nasser was very smart when it came to geopolitics. He filled a bunch of rusting tankers with, with rocks and stones and sank them at the mouth of the canal and cut Britain's lifeline to the, the Persian Gulf oil fields and Europe's lifeline for that matter. And um, that was it for British imperial power. You know, it was really truly over. The British pound, which had been for a century, the, the world's global reserve currency plunged into a crisis and the first IMF bailout was not for the Mexican peso, it was for the British pound. It took a billion dollars in US and IMF payout to save the, the British currency from complete collapse. I mean, it was, it was a, a stunning collapse, okay? So uh, when one of your major political parties in a country retreats into fantasy and irrationality, you can't maintain your imperial power. I mean, the Republicans are we have two parties in this country, and the Republicans have been, you know, along with the Democrats, the, one of the architects of, of our global system, a key player, in, in, you know, during their time in power and building and maintaining U.S. global power. And their retreat into, into bizarre irrationality is one marker of U.S. decline. I mean, imagine what's going to happen to U.S. global power when Donald Trump is reelected in 2024. Okay, and you know, I mean, I don't know what the, the betting odds in Vegas are, but but you know, I, I wouldn't give you any better than even money. You know, right now, you want to put five hundred bucks on Trump's reelection. You know, I'm not going to give you two to one. Right. 
Okay. I, you know, I'm going to give you a one to one on that. I think it's even money that he's back in 2024. And then what is going to happen to America's position in the world? I mean, the first thing that's going to happen is NATO is gone. Europe will build its own multinational defense force. Okay. Uh, and, and, uh, and then I think also the fabric of our alliances in the Pacific littoral with Japan, the Philippines, Australia, and even India, that will go. And, you know, uh, that brings, out, brings up the topic of geopolitics. One thing that in this 500-year period of changes in imperial powers from Portugal to Spain to Holland, Britain, the United States, and now China, the one, there's one continuity among this amazing diversity of powers. Every global hegemon for the past 500 years has done one thing the same. They've all dominated the vast Eurasian landmass. Okay, and when our position, you know, the, 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 at the start of the uh, of the Cold War, at the end of World War II, when the United States became the great global hegemon, the one thing that distinguished us from empires in the past, we were the first power in world history to control both axial ends of Eurasia. With the NATO pact in Europe signed in 1949, we had massive bases like Ramstein Air Base in Germany that gave us a kind of overlook into the Soviet Union. And then off the shore of Asia, we had in 1951, four mutual defense pacts with Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and Australia that gave us a, another axiom into Eurasia. And these were the basis of our power. And we linked these two bastions with rings of steel, naval armadas, and most recently, 60 drone bases from Sicily all the way to Guam, and we dominated Eurasia for 70 years. Well, that is coming to an end. China took that $4 trillion, they took about a trillion of it, and in 2013, they started investing in something called the Belt and Road Initiative to lay down a, an infrastructure of, of roads and rails and pipelines stretching from the Atlantic to the Pacific across the 6,000 miles of the Eurasian landmass to unify those two once separate continents, separated only by the distance and the, the vast empty center of Eurasia. Well, they're now dominating that. The US position in, in Europe is going to fade. If Trump comes back, it's fading anyway, but it'll be quicker. And our bilateral alliances off the, uh, the other Pacific, the other end of Eurasia and the Pacific Littoral, that's their, 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 their withering, not quite fading, but they're withering, they're, they're, they're weakening. And once all that goes and China is dominating Eurasia, well, China, as if by natural law, will become the world's great global hegemon because Eurasia is home to 70% of the world's population and 70% of the world's productivity. When you dominate Eurasia, you dominate the world. Maybe next time we talk, I'll ask you about meeting Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That'll be a different form of conversation. <laughs> Sounds good. I don't like anarchists screaming, love is free. I don't like the CIA, they killed John Kennedy. Paranoid tanks sit in Prague and Hungary. But I don't like counter-revolution paid for by the CIA. Um, oh. <laughs> sorry. Uh, new, new, new format. New, um, new format. New uh, issues, and yeah, I did not record any of the last five minutes of scintillating conversation. So, we were just talking about my conversation with Alfred McCoy, and you said something about January sixth, if I remember correctly. Yes, I, I was interested in that he. Uh, sort of talked about January 6th, not necessarily specifically, but in relation uh, to some of his experiences in the Philippines. Yeah, and um, and really, that was not only really interesting, but it really just goes to show how, you know, 
Well, it goes to show how America's becoming a shithole if we can have these lame coup attempts like like the Philippines or like any other country that we've run into the ground. But also, you know, it just goes to show there's nothing new under the sun. Like the reactions to America's empire fading into the twilight now, they're really just echoes of past empires collapsing. And I, I just wonder, does... Do people in Washington not know this is going on? Is it possible that like two jag off podcasters in Pittsburgh know more than Congress? Or do they just not care because Congress is just a massive power grab at this point? Like what do you think or is going on? There is no solution, or they can't think up a solution currently. <laughs> right. Well, also you have to remember, I mean, the I, I think it's always interested me that Steve Bannon talked about how he wanted to deconstruct the administrative state. And he also said things along the lines of, I want to go back to the time of the Tudors, uh, which, okay, uh, that doesn't sound uh, very appetizing to me. But it's interesting because I think we've slowly chipped away at the idea of even good governance in a lot of ways in this country. I mean – even someone like Nixon, and I'm, I'm not a Nixon fan, but Nixon, uh, you know, wasn't completely against welfare in the way that, you know, a lot of Republicans are today. And I mean, uh, the, the world that we had under, say, um, FDR's New Deal is in a lot of ways so far removed uh, from the sort of neoliberal order we're living in now. Uh, and, and since I would say really Reagan and Thatcher, you know, it's, it's like a whole different ballgame at this point. And when, and, when, and when you deconstruct the sort of apparatus of the state and take so much power away from it, um, and I'm not saying the state always does good either, of course, but uh, when you really remove the ability to govern, you know, <laughs> this. I mean, it's always been clear to me and I think anybody that pays attention that the Democrats and the Republicans are just playing different games. I'm not saying that one's even better than the other. They're just doing different things like the Democrats are trying to govern, um, might not agree with how they govern, but that's what they, they seem to be doing. Um, the Republicans well, I, at this point, the Republicans, I think, just it, it, it's I mean, the base in particular, I think, really has this idea of. They're jokerified, as the yes. kids would say. They yes. want to. They're like the wrecking ball coming in. I mean, I, I've often said to people, I'm not even sure. I don't like using uh, the term conservative anymore because I feel like uh, well, if it's, you look, they're revolutionary right wing. Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's uh, there's a lot of these sort of young conservatives coming out of actually like Ivy League uh, schools. People like Nate Hawkman, who's at um, national review and they're interesting because these younger ones are actually saying you know we're counter-revolutionaries they're, they're openly using that term right um, and it's i think that conservatism today is very very far removed from i mean you know teddy roosevelt was a republican a lot of people use the term uh conservative progressivism uh to describe roosevelt and i mean there's an element of conservatism that's trying to push that now um you know, uh, within the sort of uh, intelligentsia of the right. But it's interesting. We're very, very far removed from, uh, you know, prior forms of conservatism. I would say uh, pre-Goldwater forms of conservatism. Correct me if I'm wrong. Some of his analysis seems to be like, you know, the psychological impact of the lost, uh, loss of empire seems to be something that I feel like that I have to like take on faith. I don't necessarily understand the connection between what, you know, what America's global air power is like and, you know, why cops in, in St. Louis kill an arm, unarmed black guy. I mean, I, I think in some ways we see it um, expressed in the motto of, of Trumpism you know, make America great again, right? I mean, I, I think there is this sense that uh, things have changed, that uh, especially in the aftermath of 
Iraq and Afghanistan and the debacles there. I mean, the, the debacles there. I mean, it, it's it's an issue of I, I think people know in a lot of ways that the jig is up or maybe they intuitively feel that. It, it's interesting. I think McCoy would say that, you know, the people that are saying make America great again, that, that you know, uh, want American greatness uh, uh, to return. And I, I guess that they I mean, arguably, you could say that the make America great people are uh more in line with like a form of isolationism rather than wanting the reassertion of empire um, and that they just sort of want to withdraw. Um, but I think it's really interesting that it's, it's weird. I think the American right is actually accelerating in some ways uh, the, the decline of American power. And, you know, Al, Al talks about that as well. And I've, I was thinking about it in returns to in uh, in terms of uh, you know the the journalist uh, from I believe he works at the Independent Patrick uh, Coburn uh, who's, who's done a lot of war reporting. He was in Afghanistan and you know he's been in Afghanistan on and off for decades now. But uh, Patrick recently wrote uh, a piece about um, this issue of patriotism and how you know the the Trumps and the Boris Johnsons. Uh, sort of wrap themselves in the flag. But what's odd is they're the most corrosive force uh, to their countries. You know, uh, in, in a way, they're, you know, unpatriotic because they're actually withering the country out from within it. They're hollowing it out uh, through really, you know, uh, toxic actions and toxic rhetoric that leads to things like what we saw with the Capitol breach on January 6th. Yeah, and it's um you know, I just really think it's narrow-mindedness. It's um it's what we kind of do best in America. <laughs> we we focus on like what's right in front of our faces. I think in a way Richard Hofstadter gets at that in uh the the paranoid style in American politics because we always have sort of had a a sort of Trump-like contingent in America, even if you go back to the 1800s with the Know Nothing Coalition. I mean, they were very anti-immigrant. I mean, I'm I'm an Italian-American Catholic, so, you know, I, I know the history of, you know, Catholics were not well-liked in this country at, at one point. And, the, you know, there's always been this sort of um, uh, contingent that is completely xenophobic and, and sort of wants to withdraw from the world uh, the sort of I would sum it up as, uh, you know, don't tread on me, you know. Yeah, and that's kind of what freaks me out because it's like we can have a somewhat c civilized, you know, descent <laughs> into whatever being a normal country is again, but um, I think we're going to crash and burn. Well, what's what's really key to McCoy too is. If you really dig into his book, and I would recommend people do that to govern the globe, ultimately he doesn't think that the rise of China uh, is necessarily going to be a good thing. But he also doesn't think that it's going to last long. He believes that climate change is going to uh, ravage Shanghai by 2050. And he, he there's models that we have or, or projection models that are – uh, indicating that that's a very real possibility. Now, models can end up being wrong, of course, right? But it's interesting because, okay, so if the U.S. isn't the, you know, the the hegemon is the word that people use, the empire. And if China isn't the empire, then who will be? Uh, and that's going far off into the future. But if you really start thinking about it, that has some interesting ramifications and some actually good possibilities too. I know I will probably scare away uh, any – well, I don't think Alex Jones type people listen to this program. But uh, there's a possibility in the future for more global cooperation. Now, I'm not saying we have to give up like all sovereignty and completely give up the nation state system. But for instance, uh, to deal with climate change in a world where there isn't – one hyperpower, one uh, dominant superpower, maybe we will be able to learn to work together. And that's the sort of optimistic possibility. The pessimistic possibility, and Al will say this, is barbarism. Yeah, uh, neo-feudalism. Yeah. Basically. Well, I think it's crypto bros. 
I think. <laughs> oh, God. Don't even get me started. <laughs> right. NFTs. NFTs. Are we going to have a field state update NFT? Um, no, but the next uh, American Constitution is going to be an NFT. So. Oh, God. When, uh... Well, I think we've tortured these poor listeners enough. Thanks, JG. I hope I wasn't too dry and academic. Yeah, we have something, uh, something never before seen and never likely to again either. May I welcome President, President Ginsburg. Come on, Ginsburg. I don't like the government where I live. I don't like dictatorship of the rich. I don't like bureaucrats telling me what to eat. I don't like police dogs sniffing around my feet. I don't like communist censorship of my books. I don't like Marxists complaining about my looks. I don't like Castro insulting members of my sex. Leftists insisting we got the holy six. I don't like capitalists selling me gasoline, coke. Multinationals burning Amazon trees to smoke. Big corporation take over media mind. I don't like the tough bananas that are robbing Guatemala banks blind. I don't like KGB Gulag concentration camps. I don't like the Maoist Cambodian death Fifteen million were killed by Stalin, Secretary of Terror. He has killed our old red revolution forever. Don't like anarchists screaming, love is free. I don't like the CIA, they killed John Kennedy. Paranoid tanks sit in Prague and Hungary. But I don't like counter-revolution paid for by the CIA. Turkey or Korea, 1980. I don't like right-wing death squad democracy. Police state, Iran, Nicaragua, yesterday. They say, Claire, please come and keep your secret police off of me. I don't like communism. Don't like capitalism, nope. Everybody's lying on both sides. It's a joke. The bloody iron curtain of American military power is a mad mirror image of Russia's red level tower. No hope communism. No hope capitalism, yeah. Everybody's lying on both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bloody iron curtain of American military power is a mad mirror image of Russia's red bevel tower. Jesus Christ was spotless but was crucified by the mob. 
law and order, Herod's hired soldiers did the job. Flower power's fine, but innocence has got no protection. The man who shot John Lennon had a hero worshiper's connection. The moral of the song is that the world is in a horrible place. Scientific industry devours the human race. Police in every country armed with tear gas and TV. Secret masters everywhere bureaucratize for you and me. Aware, aware, wherever you are, no fear. Trust your heart. Don't ride your paranoia, dear. Breathe together with an ordinary mind. Armed with humor, lead and help enlighten. Whoa, mankind. Yeah, what are they gonna call that? Right. <laughs>